Welcome to the Wealth Setting Podcast. This is episode 218. Today is March 19th, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder, money manager, at investablewealth.com. Well, today I want to talk to you about my portfolio. And while I'd love to brag to you about all my great positions, what I want to do in this episode is focus on my three losing stocks. And the reason for that is I think that you'll learn more from dissecting the losers than you do about the winners. Everybody always wants to talk about the winners, especially the people that are have a winning hand, and I do plenty of that from time to time on, on this podcast as well. But by focusing on the losing stocks today, I want to just give you an instructive insight into what goes through my mind, why I decide to sell some, why I decide to sell to keep others, and I, I guess I want to start off by saying too that when I talk about, you know, today we're going to focus or, or concentrate on the losing stocks, that's normally not what I do in terms of the way I manage my money. And, I mean, that's even something I do in my personal life. I don't sit around and worry a whole lot about the things I'm not good at. You know, for example, I can't dribble a basketball to save my life, but I don't worry about that. I don't try and get better at it. I don't try and improve my basketball skills. In my own personal life, I work on building my strengths because I think the more that I can build my strengths, I'll get a better bang for my buck than if I try and focus on my weaknesses. Now, bringing up the basketball thing's kind of ridiculous because no matter how well I learn to dribble a basketball, I'm never going to be a professional basketball player. So let's pull that closer into reality and let's talk about, let's say, uh, some type of a business skill. Uh, for example, when it comes to business communication, I am an absolutely horrible speller. Some of you that have received emails from me might have noticed that. Now, fortunately, most of the time, spell check corrects those kind of things, but occasionally one of them gets through and I may improperly spell a word or use a word that's spelled correctly, but it's uh, it's in a different place, like, you know, your and your or there and there. Now, those are easy ones. I never really get those ones wrong, but you know what I mean. Words that sound the same, but they're spelled differently for different applications. Oh, uh, uh, proceed and proceed, I think, are two words that I mess up all the time. In any case, listen, over the last 40-some years, I could have spent my life improving my ability to spell words. And I'm sure it would have really helped from a business communication standpoint. However, rather than do that, I let spell check and you know technology along the years improve my spelling abilities you got to remember, I'm an old guy. I started, uh, you know, when there was not word processors. I, I learned to type, and you had to actually correct things with whiteout and little typo paper and move the, move the carriage back on the typewriter. So in those days, being a bad speller was really, really a disadvantage. You know, but as the computer error came in and we had word processing and spell check and all those great things, well, it didn't really matter anymore if you couldn't spell because a computer would do it for you. The software would help you along. And so rather than, you know, me and my own personal life, rather than focus on becoming a better, better speller, I focused on being a better business guy, learning how to trade stocks, learning how to identify trends and understanding how the stock market works and different ways that you can make money in the stock market. I also focused on improving my, you know, my business skills, how to be a salesman, how to market my products, things like that. Now, where do you think I would have made more money if I focused on being a better salesman or if I focused on learning how to spell better? Or, you know, where do you think I'd make more money? Learning how to effectively trade stocks or learning how to spell words? 
Ah, see, that's what I mean about not focusing on your weaknesses, but I'm digressing. So today, I want to focus on my bad performing stocks, not because I think that that's where you should dwell, but simply to let you have some insight into my mind and how I think and why I hold some stocks, why I sell others, and then how that works out in my overall whole portfolio. Because it's never about one stock. It's always about the performance of the portfolio that you care about. Incidentally, for those of you that might be new to the Wealth Studying Podcast, I do blog about all my stock buys and sells, all the portfolios, purchases that I make, and when I sell them over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Specifically, it's under the tab there called Observations and Commentary, uh, but a, a link to that will be in today's show notes. I don't have like one consolidated list of what I currently own, but if you go through those um, blog posts, which are written in sequential order, you can see my most recent blog, what I talked about, and if you scroll down from there, you'll see when I've bought or sold a stock. And then just recently, I think in the last, I don't know, three, four, five months, I also have a category on investablewealth.com where you can click on the trades. So under the, the topics, and the categories, there's one that says trades. If you click on that, that will just bring up the blog posts to talk about when I make a purchase or a sale of a stock. So let's get into these three stocks uh, that I currently own that are the, my worst performers. Uh, these are not going to be unfamiliar to those of you that have been listening for some time because I've held uh, most of these for a, uh, quite a long period of time. Uh, Starbucks is my least of the losers. I just talked about that in the last episode, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more about Starbucks other than the fact that I do think it's a good company. It's a solid U.S. institution. It has good management skills with or without Howard Schultz. It is an undisputed world-leading brand. If you look at the performance of the stock, it historically goes through ups and downs. It has peaks and valleys. Um, when Howard Schultz left the first time, there, there were problems. He came back during the recession, turned things around. I think as long as Starbucks stays focused and keeps delivering high-quality products, they'll be just fine. At a 20-some times valuation, they're a little higher to premium than I would normally like to pay for a company of their growth, but they are, I think, growing sufficiently. They still have a lot of room internationally to grow. Even within the U.S., they can further penetrate their market by offering different products and services. You know, they've, they've experimented over the years with a lot of different things. Some of their forays I don't think made any sense, like some of the, oh, I, uh, I forget the company they bought, Tivovi or something, some company that specialized in teas. Uh, you know, that didn't make so much sense because Starbucks, as they do now, they can just serve high-grade high teas in their own facilities. I don't think they had to buy some other retail operations. But um, they've also made some smart forays, I think, uh, particularly what they're doing now with their, um, their higher-end reserve and roaster section where they're going after the even premium end of the coffee connoisseurs. Uh, they've been experimenting with their evening program, which is, where they saw, which is where they serve adult beverages. I think up to this point, the experimentation has been limited to wine. And my understanding is that that has now moved from a pilot program into something they're going to potentially adopt at their higher end stores. I think that's actually something that they should do across the board. I think they should focus on their local markets and 
in the evening start offering adult beverages. The problem with that is you run into a lot of rules and regulations about what can and can't be sold with liquor license and how you have to card you know people to make sure they're 18 or 21 or however you have old you have to be in that particular state to drink. But imagine Starbucks where you go in in the morning or maybe the early afternoon or even after uh, dinner you go in there for a, for a coffee or a, a cappuccino or something. But now imagine you go in there in the evening and you're sipping wine or whiskey or bourbon or whatever the local adult beverage choice uh, of that region is. You know, so in, in Texas, they're going to be sipping whiskey and in Tennessee, bourbon and I don't know, in California, wine. Um, these newer states that are legalizing marijuana, you know, why not be serving something like that up in the evenings in Starbucks as well in a more upscale, higher end type atmosphere. These are all directions that they can go if they want to that will further expand their profit margins and their top line sales. And by the way, speaking of profit margins, if they quit focusing on being politically correct and always announcing that they're going to hire 10,000. And the reason I pick on Howard Schultz on this is, you know, it's always 10,000. Most recently, uh, he, he sent out the memo that they were going to hire 10,000 refugees from like Muslim countries or something, right? I don't know, six months, a year before that, they were going to hire 10,000 veterans, you know, guys that, and, and women that had served in Iraq and Iran and, and their spouses, you know, and it's always 10,000. They're going to hire 10,000 new employees. They're going to help 10,000 employees get a college degree through Arizona State or, or whatever program they're affiliated. I mean, that's all great. I, I definitely think that companies should focus on paying their employees higher wages and providing them with good benefits. But from a pure economic standpoint, and that's what the CEO is responsible for in a company, he's not responsible for social issues. The CEO is responsible, has a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders to make money. And making money is about controlling costs, employee wages, employee benefits, uh, employees in general, jobs. These are not profit centers. These are costs, right? Jobs are costs to a, a company. So whenever you can eliminate jobs, you make the company more profitable, you make it more efficient, you make it more productive, and all those things perpetuate the company, make the company stronger, and ensure that the company will be around in 5 or 10 or 20 or 100 years. Unprofitable companies go out of business, profitable companies last forever. I bring this up because, and this is one of the things I failed to say in the last episode, I, I was going down that path, but I didn't finish the thought. And that's was, I don't want to hear Howard Schultz or the CEO at Starbucks say something about they're going to hire 10,000 of XYZ employees. I want to hear them say they're going to bring in 10,000 robots. Because when you go into a Starbucks, uh, I think most Starbucks, you see, what, five, six, seven or more people working behind the counter. You could be doing that with one or two. No one's going to care that their latte has been handcrafted, right? A robot can more efficiently mix up a cappuccino or an espresso or steam milk or whatever it is they do there, whatever baristas do. A robot can do that faster, quicker, more consistently with less waste and at a lower cost of operation than any employee. Now, you may think that that's harsh and you may think that Starbucks shouldn't do that, but for many, many years now, robotic baristas have been available. Starbucks, from what I can tell, has been slow to adopt them. I can imagine that they've done tons of research on them. They probably have some intellectual property on them. And 
at some point they will be releasing them into their restaurants. When they do that, you'll see Starbucks bottom line increase even more. And so those are the one of the reasons why I'm holding on to Starbucks. I think they have a bright future. I think they have good management. I think they can expand internationally as well as domestically. I think that when they move into the robotic baristas, they're going to save even more money or make even more money by eliminating all the excess employees. So for now, I'm holding my Starbucks position. It pays a dividend. It's down currently a little less than 1% since I first bought it and I purchased it in May of 2016. So it's it's been less than 12 months that I've held it unless I see them not adopting things like robotics or if I see their expansions uh, you know, pulling back or not doing well. Then I'll sell the stock, but for now, I'm holding on to it. Uh, incidentally, let me also step back on, on this Howard Schultz thing. You know, when Howard came back to the company back in, I don't know, 2008, I guess it was, to help Starbucks get through the Great Recession, and it hit them really hard. You can imagine that when people were losing their jobs and we had a, a big drawdown in the stock market in 2008, people weren't going out and spending, you know, five bucks on a cup of coffee. So he had to go in there and do some real damage control. He obviously has done a great job over those years. He and the company have done a great job of, of securing the brand through that problem period. But, uh, for all of you people that are thinking, oh, well, Starbucks will never start getting rid of employees and putting in robots. Well, what did they do in 2008 when things got bad? They shut down something like, I don't know, a thousand stores, right? A thousand restaurants, boom. They pulled the plug on. They scuttled them. They just said, eh, these are markets that aren't working out. We're out. We're closing them down. They laid off. I don't know, 10, 20,000 employees, lots of people. So they do make the right decisions when they're required. And if they stop doing that, then I will sell the stock. But for now, I'm holding it. Now, the number two stock of mine that's not doing well is uh, Walmart. You've heard me talk about Walmart many, many times because I've owned it now for, oh, probably more than a year and a half. I, I purchased it in uh, for the first time in the August uh, August of 2015. So this summer, it'll end of summer, it'll be two years. Now, for my personal holding, I'm down a little more than 3% in Walmart from that original purchase. Some of my clients, um, I, I purchased that for later, so they're, they're making money on the stock. But I personally am down about th three and a quarter percent. That's after holding the stock for 18 months. But for much of the same reasons that I'm holding Starbucks, I'm going to continue to hold Walmart. In fact, I think Walmart is ahead of the curve in Starbucks in terms of turning things around. I originally bought Walmart because from a technical standpoint, it looked like it was breaking out above its then 200-day uh, moving average. I think that price was somewhere around like $72 at the time. So technically, it looked like it was doing well. They had brought in their new CEO. They were being aggressive in investing and um, fighting against Amazon to, to beef up their online sales. You know, since then, they've done that. They're, they're improving their online sales. They bought Jet.com. They've moved to the model where uh, they're competing with faster deliveries, where you know, okay, in most cases, they're not going to ship the stuff to your front door like Amazon does. But what they do that I think is a better and a more viable service than Amazon, and in particular for a lot of the perishable foods and products that you'd buy at Walmart, you can order either through an app or online at the Walmart store, you know, on your way home from work. You swing by the store, you pop the trunk, somebody brings out your groceries, loads up your trunk, and then you drive home so you're not waiting on Amazon to, to, to deliver a box to your front door when you're not home. 
I think those are the kind of strategies that I talked about, you know, a couple years ago that that's why I, I was up on Walmart. I wasn't thinking that Walmart's going to totally lose out to an Amazon because Walmart has all these local stores where they can do these type of deliveries. You take that to the next level where, you know, you're not even going to the store, but the Uber driver's picking it up for you. The other thing I like about Walmart is, is the diversity of, of what they sell. And again, the, the proximity to most Americans. Now, if you're living up on the, uh, you know, the upper end of Manhattan, you may not go to Walmart, you may not like Walmart, but across the country, there's millions and millions and millions of people that do. In fact, there used to be an old joke that God must love Walmart shoppers because he made so many of them. Well, I think that's still the case. Walmart is one of the few retail establishments that you can go into, um, you know, for example, most of them have a an auto service attached. So you can go in, you can have your oil changed, and while you're getting your oil changed, you can swing by and pick up a loaf of bread, a gallon of milk, and a box of shotgun shells. People like that diversification. They like that ability to go in and get a, a, a variety of different products. And again, some of these things are things that you're not going to order on Amazon. You're probably not going to order milk from Amazon, at least not the way they're currently set up in most markets. You're definitely not going to order a box of shotgun shells because Amazon doesn't sell ammunition. So, And you're not going to get your oil changed in Amazon. So just a couple quick examples of why I still think Walmart has a place. They're the world's largest retailer. They are the U.S.'s largest private employer. They're not going anywhere. I think they're, they've struggled and made it through most of the problems that they've had, um, and those times are behind them. In the meantime, they pay a, uh, about a 3% dividend. I'm going to hold on to them and see if this price can't go up, oh, you know, 10, 15, 20% from where I bought it. Final word on Walmart. I'm sure that none of the executives there listen to the Wellsteading podcast, but if they do, just a little word of advice from, from me, go back and read your founder's autobiography. I think over the years, Walmart has gotten off track, particularly since Sam Walton has died. Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart, died, I believe, in the mid-90s or so, and he led Walmart through an amazing expansion. It has still obviously grown and expanded immensely since the 1990s, but over the past decade, for sure, Walmart had, had really lost their way. You would go into Walmart stores. There wouldn't be products on the shelf. Yeah, stores would be dirty, all types of things that Sam Walton would have never stood for. You know, employees that, that didn't know anything, couldn't help you. That wasn't the type of company that Sam Walton built. And then in particular that uh, I want to really focus on, and particularly going back to his autobiography, Walmart wasn't all about selling junk that was made in China. Not the original stores, not his original concept. Now, it was always about low price, but it was low price at an acceptable quality. I think over the last 10 years, Walmart stores have been filled up with a lot of junk, um, like many retailers have, coming in from Asia. Go back, read Sam's autobiography. What was the title of it? Made in America. Just saying, executives at Walmart, read the book. You probably never have. Now, as to my worst, absolute worst position in my portfolio, and the worst position I've had for, I don't know, a long, 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 long time, uh, generally sell my positions before they get to this much of a loss, but that is FXB. It's not an individual stock. It is an exchange-traded fund. FXB is an ETF that invests in the British pound, the, the British sterling, their currency, so it's a currency ETF. You have to be extremely careful when you invest in ETFs that 
are currency-based or commodity-based because in many cases they can degrade more rapidly than the underlying security or commodity that they're invested in. This is particularly true of inverse ETFs. I know from time to time I'll hear from someone that says that, uh, you know, hey, they just discovered these two and three time inverse ETFs. You know, you can short the S&P 500 by three times or you can invest in gold by triple times, a, a triple long position in gold. I never purchase those. I completely stay away from them. Those type of securities, the, the double, triple, either long or inverse positions in ETFs, those are for day traders. You don't want to hold those positions any longer than one day because not only do they have a huge amount of fees associated with them, but there's there's a huge amount of, uh, of friction or of breakage that occurs. You know, because they're constantly investing in like short and long contracts and different types of options expirations and things that are there can be very expensive, the price on those are reset on a daily basis. And so, for example, you can be in like a three times long gold fund or three times inverse short gold fund and gold may fluctuate 1% and you would think that you're going to fluctuate the corresponding 3%, you know, more or less. Well, no, that's not the case. Gold could, could go up and you could still be losing money in a long position because of the cost that that fund has to invest in all types of futures contracts. In fact, rather than talking about this, because I know I'm digressing and some of your eyes are probably glossing over, I'm going to do a video about how ETFs can degrade. And specifically, I'm going to use an example of USO and, and that coordinate that with oil prices. Because I think many of you that don't track that on a regular basis will be surprised to see how they don't correlate. The crazy part about that this is that, that certain times, certain ETFs do better than others in correlating to their underlying index or the commodity. For example, I'm talking about FXB right now, and I also in my portfolio do have a short position in oil. Well, that short position in oil has not had degradation uh, or any kind of decay rate anywhere near what USO has had in a long position for oil. Why that happens, I'm not really sure of. I really don't care. I just track them on my own individual holding basis so that I don't end up holding an ETF that's degrading too rapidly. Ah, I know. You don't care. Okay, back to FXB. It does happen to be down 10% since I purchased it last June. I bought it right after the Brexit. That's when the pound had fallen about 10%. I thought that it might fall another 5% and then stabilize and rally. Well, it ended up falling another 10%. So again, that's a really good lesson that when you think something can't drop in price, it can always drop further, right? It thinks it can always go to zero. One of the main reasons I didn't sell this position, and because I do want to stress this, I don't hold my weaknesses, right? I'm not married to a stock. I diversify my holdings where I don't put all my eggs in one basket. And if one of my positions doesn't do well, I just sell it and I move on. I generally like to sell before I get a 10% loss or, or at least right around a 10% loss. One of the reasons I have held the British pound for almost a year now is because the political sands keep shifting and that could have a huge impact on where the price of the pound is in relation to other currencies because remember when it comes to currencies it is truly a zero loss game the British pound does not have to go up in intrinsic value it just has to not devalue as much as a relative currency such as 
the yen or the euro or the American dollar. So it's not that the British currency has to appreciate, it just has to not depreciate as much as other currencies. And we have been in a market for the last four years where countries have been racing to the bottom to undercut other people's currencies. And so that's one of the reasons these political sands keep shifting here quite rapidly. The other reason is, is that in spite of Brexit, we have not seen a huge pullback in the British economy. In fact, their overall market's up pretty well. Real estate prices, things like that still seem to be you know, pretty stable. I, I don't think that we're going to have a major crash or meltdown in the British economy from a hard Brexit unless all the politicians get totally unreasonable. And this is, you know, the same thesis that I used three months ago when I moved into so many emerging market and, and foreign and overseas stock positions when people were worried that all these markets were going to crash because Donald Trump was going to put up tariffs and trade barriers and build walls and have all kinds of currency taxes and, and border taxes and things. And I said that, you know, some of that's likely to happen. But overall, I didn't think the global economy was going to shut down. The funds that I've invested in in India, Mexico, emerging markets, Israel, you know, they're all up in excess 10%. So the world didn't come to an end just because Donald Trump got elected president. I don't think the British pound is going to disintegrate simply because they're leaving the European Union. I'm waiting through the end of this month when the British Prime Minister lays out the strategy to leave the European Union, and then I will probably, I want to see how that affects the British pound. I will probably even hold through April-May elections in France to see what happens there, because that could have a big impact on the euro. For the naysayers out there that think that, you know, Scotland's going to leave the UK and the Europeans want to punish Britain for leaving the European Union. And that's the big thesis here is that the Europeans are going to make an example of Britain so that none of the other countries want to leave the Union. And so they're going to come down really hard on Britain. That's, again, why it's, the currency has been devalued so much. I don't believe that because, as I stated before, people in Germany still want to sell BMWs to England. People that own beach property in Spain, still want to rent out their property to vacationing Britainers that come to the Spanish beaches. People in France and Italy that sell cheese and high fashion clothing into the British market, well, they still want to sell that into Britain, whether Britain is in or out of the European Union. So I think the punishment fallacy doesn't make sense unless Europeans want to cut their nose off to spite their face. Now, looking over the last century and the relationship that the Brits, the Germans, and the French have had and the multiple world wars that it's caused, I could be taking a big gamble here. But I think rational minds will take over and this won't be a punishment on Britain and some type of normal barrier-free trade will continue between Great Britain and Europe. The other factor, and this is the nuclear option that, that Britain has already hinted at, is if they're punished, they won't take that sitting down. Uh, one of the comments that I think their finance minister had, had made at a European meeting was, he said, you try and punish us and we'll retaliate by becoming the Singapore of the English Channel. And what he meant by that was that Britain will go full bore free trade. They'll open up their economy to all type of European corporations and offer them little to no taxes. So it'll be a huge tax haven 
just as Singapore is in Asia or, you know, the Grand Cayman Islands is here in the Americas, they will basically set themselves up as an island for corporations and high net worth individuals that want to flee the high tax rates of Europe. That sent a real chill through some European governments, and I think the reason for that is, is that it could be done. So if they want to get into a spitting war, Britain has, I think, more firepower than Europe. So for now, I remain long in the British pound. I may not make money on it, but I at least think it has a high likelihood of gaining back a large percent of that 10% that I've currently lost. But what I don't like about that ETF is that unlike Walmart, unlike my position in Starbucks, it does not pay a dividend. And so with those other two stocks, while I'm waiting for them to consolidate and, and rise in price, I'm still collect, collecting a quarterly dividend. And so my money is more than keeping up with inflation. That's not the case with an ETF that focuses on currencies or commodities or, or some other type of uh, more of a speculative play. And that's why generally I only put very, very small amounts of my overall portfolio into those type positions. Well, hey, there you have it. Those are my three worst underperforming positions in my portfolio. They're the only three that I currently own that are negative. Everything else is doing just fine. As I mentioned, you can read about that over at investablewealth.com under the observations and commentary section. I have about five videos up over at YouTube. You can access those through Wealthsteading. If you do want to get notices of when I put a new one up, you can subscribe for that free over at YouTube. I will put a link in today's show notes directing you to those videos. And as I mentioned, I will be working on a video to show about how the oil ETF USO did not correlate or has not correlated lately with the price of oil and why you should be cautious when you deal with commodities and speculative inverse type ETFs because they always don't keep up with that underlying index. Well, hey, as always, thanks for joining me. Until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.